Okay, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be starting with verse 9. And my object today is to get through the end of this chapter. Okay? Um, I'll be back with you next week, but after that I'll be gone for probably two, at least two Sundays. We're going on the road to preach on some college campuses. So I'd like to get through at least the first message to the church at Ephesus, and then we can just continue when I get back. So... Uh, the elders probably just need to make some alternate plan to, for the teachings on those days. Um, and it might be like this before we finish this book, but we're not on a schedule, we're not in a hurry, uh, we're not bound by programs or calendars like some of these modern day churches. So that's a good thing, gives us the freedom to study God's Word and be spoken to by His Spirit at His pace and not at ours. Um, Last week we uh, finished up the salutation of the book and saw how many amazing things were there just in those few passages of Scripture uh, up through verse 8. We learned some things about the nature of the Trinity. Uh, we're reminded of the three offices that Jesus Christ holds. Um, about the promise of His coming that, was so sh- that is so sure it's spoken of in the present tense. And that how He claims the title given to God Almighty, which proves again that He is God. So what an amazing collection of truth there in the first eight verses. But we're going to move on today. And uh, verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1 is what can be called the things which thou hast seen. We're going to see in verse 19 that Jesus Christ gives an outline for this book and He commissions John to write three things. The things which thou hast seen. In other words, what you have just seen, which is a vision of the glorified Christ. We're going to see that today. He commissions him to write the things which are, which we'll see are the messages to the seven churches, and the things which shall be hereafter or after these things, which is uh, beginning with chapter 4 through the rest of the book. So this short passage of Scripture, this vision of the glorified Christ, of Christ in terms of who He is as reigning King and Messiah, is the things which John has already seen by virtue of verse 19. So this is the first major uh, section of the books, very short. But I'm going to start here with uh, verses 9 through 11. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So here we have the introduction to this vision that John is going to see and a commission, what he's to do with this vision. 
John describes himself as a brother and a companion to the saints in tribulation. Now, this word tribulation here does not mean the great tribulation or the tribulation. Some people would argue that the dispensational concept of a seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture prior to the coming of Christ is... is uh, not really taught in the scriptures, and that all Christians are to endure tribulation. And uh, when it refer, or some would say that uh, references to Christians enduring tribulation are proof that there is no rapture. Well, there's a difference between suffering for Christ and enduring tribulation, and the actual period of tribulation, which is God's wrath being poured out upon the earth for its wickedness and upon the nation of Israel to get their attention so that they'll come to Jehovah and repent and believe upon Messiah. But John was experiencing the tribulation that we as all Christians should experience. He was in prison on the Isle of Patmos. Not all of us have experienced prison. Maybe we will. But in some form or another, if we're living godly in Christ Jesus, we shall suffer persecution and tribulation. That's what Paul says in his, one of his letters to Timothy. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So what John was experiencing was normal for a genuine Christian. Are you suffering for Jesus Christ in some way in your life? That is a question. If not, then perhaps you're not living godly. And we live in a country where we still have freedom to share the gospel. But if you're actively sharing your faith, where you're out on the streets, you're going to endure some form of suffering or persecution. Those of us in here who have preached and done tract distribution, we know these things. And that's normal. We see in the lives of the apostles that all of them met a martyr's death except perhaps John. And even John was in prison on the Isle of Patmos. It says here that he was there, in verse 9, for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now when I read this, I think of Daniel. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Why? Because of his convictions and his witness. His convictions led him to pray with his face toward Jerusalem despite the decree of, that the king had been tricked into signing about no one praying to any god but the king. And when Daniel was apprehended, and given, test, uh, given opportunity to recant, his witness was blunt. He would not recant. Just like the three Hebrew children uh, when threatened with the fiery furnace. So John was suffering persecution for his convictions and for his witness. For the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay? The Word of God is what tells us how we should live to be a light in the dark world. Our convictions. The testimony of Jesus Christ is our testimony or our witness of Him. Could it be said that you are experiencing some form of tribulation because of your convictions, which are steadfast from the Word of God, and because of your testimony for Jesus Christ? That ought to be our desire. To live for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if you were to be apprehended and accused of being a Christian in days of persecution, what are the evidences that could be brought against you? What are the evidences that the wicked could make stick that you were living the Word of God and giving the testimony of Jesus Christ? 
That's a question we should ask ourselves. Could those evidences be brought against us as they were to John? And that, our desire should be yes. May the accusation against us in days of persecution be that we are living for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 10 is kind of an interesting phrase here. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, there's debate as to what this means here. Some would say that it's a reference to the day of the Lord, which is the day of God's judgment upon the earth. That encompasses the the, the rapture and the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom and the restoration of all things and the destruction of the wicked one and of evil. That's called the day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of the Lord is that entire period. Sometimes it's a reference in the Old Testament to the actual day when Jesus Christ comes back and overthrows Antichrist. But it can also refer to a period of time. And some, are say, some would say that John is making reference here to an out-of-body experience, kind of what, like what Paul uh, underwent in 1 Corinthians 12. He talked about how he knew a man, he wasn't real sure about the details, but was caught up to the third heaven and was able to see things that God revealed to him. Some would say this is what was going on with John. He had been transported to the day of the Lord in the Spirit and was seeing that day take place before him. Others would say this is a reference not to the day of God's judgment and, a, and some sort of spiritual experience by John, but that he was meditating in the Spirit on the first day of the week, which is the day of the week that early Christians began to meet. We know they came together for, to, to break bread and to hear the Word of God on the first day of the week. We know that they came together to take up offerings on the first day of the week. We know that the apostles and the brethren were gathered together on the first day of the week uh, after Christ's resurrection when He appeared to them and made Himself known. And we know that the first day of the week was the day in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So early Christians began to gather, break bread, fellowship, and preach the Word of God to one another on the first day of the week. And that's where Sunday church comes from. So some would say this is a reference to that, that John was meditating on the Word of God on the first day of the week. He was an elder that served in, uh, uh, as accountability to the church at Ephesus. He lived out his days there, it's argued, after he was released from prison. And so John obviously had a close connection with the believers at Ephesus and knew they would be gathering together on the first day of the week. And it makes sense to me that he took that time to commune with them in spirit and that this is therefore a reference to the day that Christians began to associate with worship. Now this would be the scripture passage where that term, the Lord's Day, comes from. It's nowhere else mentioned in scripture. And the grammar here is interesting because anytime the Bible and the New Testament talks about the day of the Lord's judgment, the original language is, is clear, the day of the Lord. But here in this passage... Lord is an adjective in the Greek, just like it is in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul refers to the Lord's Supper. It's not a noun at the end of a, uh, that's an object of the preposition like the day of God's judgment. It's actually an adjective. It's a unique uh, syntax here in Revelation chapter 1 that's just like Paul's reference to the Lord's Supper. So that leads me to believe that this isn't talking about John being transported to the day of the Lord in the Spirit, he was actually meditating in the Spirit 
worshiping on the Lord's Day, which would therefore be the first day of the week. And uh, we can uh, take from that that the day that we come to worship Jesus Christ in fellowship as a church body is the Lord's Day because the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Just like the breaking of the bread and the, the drinking of the wine uh, to commemorate the Lord's death is the Lord's Supper. And so John, absent from Ephesus in body, was communing with the saints in the Spirit. And we'll often find, friends, that if we'll take time to be still and not just read the Bible in the morning, not just do the little quiet time thing or the checkbook of faith, but we'll sit and meditate upon what we read and commune with the Spirit, spend a little less time talking to God and a little more time listening, we'll find that the Holy Spirit will speak to us directly through His Word and we will learn things that would otherwise go unheeded. And that's exactly what happened here with John. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. To be in the Spirit is not just to talk. It's not just to pray to God and ask Him to give you something. It's to listen to God. It's to do what Eli told young Samuel. Listen when the Lord speaks to you. John was listening. And it says he heard behind him a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now this was Jesus Christ speaking to him. The same one who spoke in verse 8 and ascribed, and, and, and to whom was ascribed the same title given to God the Father. The Lord which is, which was, and which is to come. And then Jesus gives John a commandment. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, I've explained to you guys that Asia in the ancient world was not China, Japan, all of those places. But there's modern-day Turkey kind of sits out in the um, uh, sits out in the Mediterranean Sea here, and here's Greece and Italy. And Asia was a province in modern-day Turkey that was on the western end of that landmass. This was called Asia Minor in the New Testament. And most of Paul's missionary journeys took place here and then across the water here in Greece. And so that was the center of the civilized world. And these seven churches kind of formed an arc on the western end. And then John was on an island right off the coast called Patmos. So John is commanded to write down what he sees and, these, and copies of this writing are to be sent to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, these seven churches were actual churches in John's day. We know that. Ephesus was the church where John came from. And he chooses to write, or he's told to write to them first. These are representative churches. I'm going to speak a little more about this later when we get into chapter 2. But they were local, but not just local. And the proof of that is that in each message, there's an exhortation which says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Therefore, these messages weren't just meant for those local bodies. They were meant for anyone that has a hear to hear. So they're personal messages. Not only messages to the local church, but messages to be embraced by churches of all days and time and by individual Christians of all days and time. So we know they're representative churches. There's a lot more to the order and the layout of these messages, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
But the scope of, of Christ's commandments to these churches, you need to know now, goes beyond those specific churches. They apply and are given to us as well. Okay? Now, the rest of the chapter is the actual vision that John sees. He's meditating on the first day of the week. The Spirit speaks to him. Jesus Christ gives him a commandment. And then he's given a vision. Beginning with verse 12, it says, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." And he laid his right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Okay? So, three things are noted in this vision. Three things are of importance. What did I do with my marker? Here we go. One, we have seven stars, seven candlesticks or lampstands, And we have the Son of Man. It's very obvious who this Son of Man is when He speaks. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need to do an in-depth exegesis or interpretation to understand that. It's very obvious John is seeing Jesus Christ glorified. Well, as is the case in most places in Revelation, when symbols are given, an interpretation is given. John was confused obviously. And so this, this uh, one that spoke with him explains to him in verse 20 what these symbols are. And so we don't need to think of these as dark metaphors that cannot be understood, as some would say. The interpretation is given right here, just as it is in many of Jesus' parables, just as it was given to Daniel when he was confused. He was given an interpretation. So we know what these things are because the interpretation is very plainly given in verse 20. Okay? The seven stars are referred to in this passage as the angels of the seven churches. Okay? Now some would argue that uh, behind each church there is an angelic spirit that guards and protects that church and that these stars represent the angels of specific churches. That would be one interpretation. But what does that word angel in the original language mean? We've talked about this before. He's a messenger. 
Okay? In fact, the same Greek word, angelos, is actually translated messenger in several places in the New Testament. So these were messengers to the churches. It's my opinion that these are, this is a reference to... What, 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 who would be considered a messenger of a church? A pastor? The pastors or the leaders of these local churches. Now, it could have been the actual people that were sent to John while he was in tribulation on Patmos, and then he wrote these things down and sent these messages back to the seven churches through messengers that were sent. But because these messengers are actually held in the hand of Christ, it seems to me that these are the leaders that have been appointed over these churches and confirmed by Christ Himself. If you look at how Timothy was told to ordain elders and the qualifications for leadership in the church and um, how, how those that God commissioned or those that were commissioned by the church were actually called by God first, we have an interesting picture of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who um, holds the ministry of those He's appointed in authority in His church, in His hand. Okay, I believe this is a, me- a reference to the leadership of these churches. The ministers of Christ, whether you're an elder, uh, whether you're part of a, a plurality of elders in a local body as we have here, or whether you're the single pastor of a church, the mis- ministers of Christ derive their power and office from Him not from themselves. That's why the elder or the bishop is told not to lord himself over God's heritage, but to be an ensample to the flock or an example to the flock. Because the authority of the pastor does not come from himself. Some think it does. It comes from Jesus Christ. And they are held in His hand. If they're, fa- if they're false and they lead God's people astray, no one can deliver them from God's hand. If they're true and they're faithful in the ministry of the Gospel, no one can touch them. So to be in God's hand for the man of God is a serious thing and a joyful thing at the same time. We have the seven candlesticks. The seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So the stars would be a reference to the leaders of the churches. The candlesticks would be the churches themselves. Now this is a reference to um, the light that the church is supposed to be in a dark world. These candlesticks were lampstands. Okay, The lampstands in old times would burn with oil. The oil would be the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when that is quenched or grieved, The light goes out. The church here is presented as a picture of light in a dark world. Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men. A city that is on a hill cannot be hid. That ought to be the church in the world. Not a circus. Not a country club. Not a coliseum with entertaining programs, but a light in a dark world. And the only way a church can be a light in the dark world is if it is preaching the truth and not preaching the darkness. 
We'll see as we study these messages to the seven churches how where apostasy begins and where it ends. We'll see that so many things Christians or churches think are honoring to God are actually abomination to Him. We'll see that what God considers important is labor done with Him, not for Him. A church is supposed to be a light. And if it's not a light, the testimony will go out. God will remove the testimony. So we have the leaders of churches in Christ's hand. No one can save those in Christ's hand that are false. No one can harm those in Christ's hand that are true. The power and office of the pastor, the elder, derives from Christ Himself. We have the church as lights in a dark world, candlesticks. And then we have the Son of Man. Jesus Christ Himself, the head of the body. The head of the body. And Jesus Christ in His vision is standing in the middle of these candlesticks. Emphasizing that He is the head of the church. It's He that builds His church. Now, I want you all to look up a few scriptures here. We have a description of Christ here and what He looks like. I've already read that. Matthew, if you'll look up Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Kelly, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. Anna, John 5, 22 and 27. Jeremy, Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. Beth, if you look up Matthew 17, verse 2. And Jason, Revelation 19, 11 through 13. Now Christ, or Messiah, is presented with these descriptions in many places in the New Testament. Or in the Bible, excuse me, the whole Bible. And what John is seeing here is something that others had already seen. So I want to I want to uh, draw some comparisons here. So Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and he came before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Ancient of Days is a reference to God the Father here. Okay, Son of Man in the vision here. What uh, John sees is one likened to the Son of Man. So there's a direct tie between what John sees here and the classic messianic passage in the Old Testament that Jews understood as unquestionably referring to Messiah. Okay? Daniel 7, 9. Okay, the description here that Daniel gives of the Ancient of Days it talks about his hair, white, wool. It talks about his fire, his wheels of fire. So, what Daniel saw in chapter 7 is exactly what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. And in verse 13 that Matthew read, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, God the Father... But in verse 9, the Ancient of Days is a title given to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. I and my Father are one. And as God Almighty is the Ancient of Days, so is the Son of Man. So John was seeing exactly what Daniel saw. And one of the ways I know that chapter 7 verse 9 is referring to the Son of God, 
even though in a few verses later, Ancient of Days is referring to the Father, comes from John chapter 5, verse 22 and 27. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, 27, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. God does not judge. He's committed all judgment to the Son. So when the world is judged, it is the Son of God that judges man. Okay? Now, the picture that Daniel gives in verse 9 of chapter 7 is one of judgment. The judge. The judge is Jesus Christ because the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus Christ is not only the Son of Man, He's the Ancient of Days. And in His glorified presence, He's not a weakling hanging on a cross with blood dripping down as the Catholics would display time and time again. He's an almighty Creator, hair white as wool, denoting wisdom, His eyes as a flame of fire, His feet as fine brass, His Word or the Word of God as a two-edged sword proceeding from His mouth. What we have here is the picture of a judge. Daniel chapter 10, 5 and 6. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fire, with fine gold of Ephesus. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass. And the voice of his words like were the like the voice of a multitude. Daniel chapter ten, again Daniel sees the same vision that John sees in chapter one. You see the similarities? Brass, flames of fire, his voice as the voice of a multitude or the voice of many waters. The glorified Messiah. You see, there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus Christ was glorified as Messiah before He was even born in the overall sovereignty of God. And Daniel saw a picture of this. The same Messiah that Israel and the people of Old Testament times looked forward to coming is the same one that we look back upon in faith and look forward to in terms of His second coming. Some people would argue that salvation in the Old Testament was by the law and therefore different than it is for people today after the coming of Christ. And as you're on these campuses preaching, as we're on these campuses preaching sometime, a lot of these kids will say, well, what about people that, that were living before Christ? And uh, how could they be saved? That's not fair. Man has always been made right with God through faith. When sin came into the world, there was nothing man could do to cleanse his wicked heart. Not even Adam. Okay? God demonstrated uh, His making provision for the sins of Adam and Eve by clothing them with coats of skins. And therefore there was a blood sacrifice. And their faith was in that. Abel's faith was in the blood sacrifice in terms of looking forward to the ultimate provision that it, in Jesus Christ that had already been prophesied in the Garden of Eden. Men in the Old Testament were made right through repentance and faith. Men in the New Testament and today are made right through repentance and faith. The only difference is the perspective of time. It took just as much faith to look forward into time that Messiah would come and make provision for the sins of the world as it does to look back and believe that He did come. And we're all looking forward that He'll come again in faith. So, 
There is no division between the Old and the New Testament, as if the Old Testament is obsolete. It's one book. It's the progressive revelation of God. It fits together. And we see that in passages like this, where this vision described is just like what appeared in the Old Testament. Matthew 17, 2. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Matthew 17, where was that that Jesus appeared that way in the Gospels? He took James, John, and Peter up onto that mountain and was transfigured before them. Jesus Christ gave them a glimpse of Him as glorified Messiah that in its description was very much like what John saw here. So John didn't just see it once. Like Daniel, he saw it twice. First at the Mount of Transfiguration and again here as an old man in Revelation chapter 1. Now Daniel was a very old man when those visions were given to him. The first six chapters of Daniel are primarily historical. And then the last uh, six chapters of Daniel are prophetic. And a lot of Daniel's visions, after the vision that he interpreted when Nebuchadnezzar saw that great statue, happened years later when he was a very old man. Okay, John was an old man. Revelation 19, 11-13. Set upon him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Same Messiah, Revelation 1 that John sees is the Messiah that returns in Revelation chapter 19 at the battle of Armageddon, overthrows the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel and sets up a kingdom. In both passages, what we see emphasizes the judgment, the judgment, the office of judge held by our Messiah. Now so many people think of Jesus Christ as this... uh, uh, humble prophet, which he was when he came to this earth in obedience. But people don't understand that though he came once as a suffering servant, he's coming again as a judge in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that obey not the gospel. Jesus Christ is serious business. And he's not one that's our homeboy. He is Lord and King. And when he comes back, these excuses and this garbage that the church talks about his ministry is going to be thrown down before him. The enemies of the cross, those that mock His name, those that teach many ways to heaven, those that worship mankind will be thrown down in His presence, overthrown in an instant. Not a prolonged battle, not a siege of Jerusalem that will last for weeks, but in an instant. The prophet Zechariah talks about how at that coming, which is described there in Revelation 19, that the enemies will look up and that their eyes will literally melt out of their sockets. And the flesh will consume off their body in an instant at the brightness and glory of His coming. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that old movie, Indiana Jones and Raiders, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very first Indiana Jones movie. When they open the ark up at the end, one of those Nazi guys that's standing there looking, the, 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 the angel, angelic spirits or whatever came out. And anyway, his whole face just melts off. And that's an interesting picture because that's what's described there in Zechariah. When Jesus the Messiah comes back, He comes back as a judge. And what John saw 
was the Son of Man as judge standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Now, it says here that he was gird about the paps in a golden girdle. Okay? In verse 13. Jesus Christ did not have his girdle about the waist. You know, when, when the girdle was about the waist, that was a sign of service. It was about the chest or the paps, which is a sign of a magistrate. It's the insignia of a magistrate's office. He was dressed for judgment. Said that his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were of brass. That reminds me of the brass altar that was in the Old Testament tabernacle and later in the temple. It was in the outer court. And that burning on the brazen altar was a symbol of God's judgment upon sin. So the connection of Jesus Christ here with brass again points to His office as judge. said there was a two-edged sword proceeding out of His mouth. What is that two-edged sword? The Word of God. And that sword coming out of His mouth and those, that, those eyes that are flames of fire are a reference to the Word, the living Word of God. The living Word of God, the written Word of God, it's really the same thing. Just like the Ancient of Days, God the Father, Ancient of Days, God the Son, it's the same thing. Jamie, if you could look up Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 14. 12, 12 and 13, I'm sorry. This is a familiar passage, verse 12, concerning the Word of God, but verse 13 is just as important. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Okay, we have the Word of God here sharper than any two-edged sword. That two-edged sword proceeds from the mouth of Christ. It's a picture of the Word coming out of His mouth. The written Word of God, my friends, is so tied to the living Word of God that it cannot be separated. Just like God the Son is so tied to God the Father, it cannot be separated. God the Father is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. God the Son is Almighty God in human flesh. But they're one and the same. They're both the one which is, which was, which is to come. They're both the Ancient of Days. The Word of God, the written Word of God, the sharp two-edged sword is so tied to the living Word that it proceeds from His mouth. And then look how the Word of God is described here in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. My friends, the Bible, the Word of God is described here as a person. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. All things are naked and open before the Word of God. Paul describes the Word of God uh, in 1 Corinthians as being perfect. And when he was writing to the Corinthians, it was a day and time when the New Testament was not completed and there were questions about certain things in the church and, 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 and God was using tongues and prophecies and things to speak to the specific churches. And then, John, then Paul talked about how where there are tongues, they'll cease. Where there are prophecies, they'll fail. 
But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. The perfect he was referring to in a neuter sense was the Word of God. And then he went on to say, now we see through a glass darkly. But then, that is when the perfect comes face to face, the image there is of a book in front of the face, we shall know even as we are known. What's the key to knowing ourselves as we are truly known by God? Right here in the book. There is nothing that we can hide from God. There's nothing that we can hide from the Word of God. Because the Word of God lays open everything. All things are naked before the living Word and the written Word. It's one and the same. Now those eyes of fire there in Revelation chapter 1. That's a reference to Jesus Christ being able to see and know everything. We know that the Word of God sees and knows everything. It's one and the same. So what's my point? My point is this. You cannot love or know Jesus Christ unless you love and know His Word. Period. These quote-unquote fake Christians out here that will claim to be Christians and they'll come up and they'll argue against the preaching of the Gospel and then they'll make a stupid statement like the Bible was just written by men. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're fake Christians because Jesus Christ and the Holy Bible are one and the same. You don't have one without the other. You are not a Christian unless you are a Bible believer. You're not a Bible believer unless you know and understand that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only Messiah for the world. And He's the only way to righteousness and peace. One and the same. That's what's wrong with the church today is this book has been tossed out for the opinions of men and churches worship men and not Jesus Christ and His Word. When Christ comes back, that Word will proceed from His mouth. Not only as John saw it here in Revelation chapter 1, but when He comes back at Armageddon. And it's by the Word of God that men will be judged. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if any man hear My words and does not receive them, I don't judge him. I came into the world to save the world. But if a man hears My words and rejects them, he already has a judge. That's the word I have spoken. And the same will judge him in the last day. My friends, the written word is so tied to the living word that you can't have a relationship with one and not the other. That's a powerful lesson for the church. And it's implied here in this description that John gives. Because Christ's eyes as a flame of fire sees everything. Cross-reference that with Hebrews where the Word of God sees everything. The sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. Cross-reference that with Hebrews. And we see that the Word of God and the living Word and the written Word are one and the same. So friends, you see how important it is to interpret Scripture with Scripture? You see how Scripture sheds light on what's happening here? We can understand these things. And the truth is simple. It says also here that His countenance was as the sun. Bob, would you read for us Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? Yeah, Malachi, there is a book in the Bible named after you. Or you named after it, actually. Malachi 4, 1 through 3. This is talking about Messiah. The last book of the Old Testament. It closes with a curse. Not with a blessing, but a curse. But prior to that curse, we're given an amazing picture of Messiah in His glory. First three verses.
and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall assume righteousness, arise with healing in its wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calf of the star, and ye shall turn down the evening, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall be them, saith the Lord of hosts. Amen. Here Messiah is presented as the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings to those that fear Him. But to the wicked, it's a day in which the Son of Righteousness will burn as an oven and destroy, coming in flaming fire, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we see in Revelation, Christ's countenance is as the sun. That is terror for the wicked, my friends. Terror for the wicked. But it's comfort and healing for the saints. It's an interesting paradox here. It's just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us that, are believe, that believe it's the power of God. It's the paradox of God's truth. When God's Word is preached, those that are perishing think we're idiots and fools out here on those cam- these campuses. But to those that believe, it's the power of God. Jesus Christ and His brightness to those that are perishing is a terror. To the wicked, it's terror. But to us, it's not something to fear. It's the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. So, Guys, when we read these, I'm talking to you children right now, when we read these passages about Jesus Christ that present Him in a very serious and terrible light, it's not that we as Christians should fear. Oh, we should fear in terms of our awe and reverence before God. We'll see how John reacts. But we shouldn't be scared because for the Christian, these things are comfort because we know that Jesus Christ is more powerful than all the enemies of God. And that as a terrible judge, He's going to overthrow the wicked so that we can live with Him in peace and eternal life. So the brightness of Jesus Christ for you, if you believe on Him, is healing, comfort. It's for the wicked that it's terror. Terror. Now look in verse 17. It says, when John, John said, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead, and He laid His right hand upon me. What was John's response to his vision of the glorified Christ? Was it a high five? Hey, Jesus, my homeboy. He fell at his feet on his face before him like a dead man. Now this is the same John who in chapter 13 of his gospel, this is the same John who in chapter 13 of his gospel It is said he laid on the bosom of Christ at the Lord's Supper. He was familiar with Jesus. He was part of that inner circle of disciples that Jesus would often take aside to show them special things like at the Transfiguration. But John was very familiar with Christ at the Lord's Supper and His humanity. But here in the presence of the glorified Christ, he falls on his face. My friends, the lesson is that we must be careful with too much familiarity. The way we speak of Jesus, the way we pray to Him, the way we present Him and communicate Him to others, 
We must be careful with too much familiarity. As I said before, Jesus Christ is not my homeboy. He's Lord and Christ. He's Lord and Christ. Vicki, if you'd look up Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and Jim, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Some people say, well, we aren't supposed to fear God. That's Old Testament. Yeah, it's Old Testament. It's New Testament too. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, very simply, two words, fear God. Period. We should have a healthy fear, awe, and reverence for Jesus Christ. Not as just some pal that we can go to and excuse everything we've done. Or somebody, oh, I pray to Jesus every day and then I live for the world. No, you ought to fall on your face before Him in humble adoration for what He's done. Acts chapter 2, 36. Peter was preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. This same Jesus whom you've crucified as a man, a weakling on the cross, has been made Lord and Christ. Lord means Master. Christ there means Messiah. The Jews understood that as many Messiah. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow, my friends. Every tongue will confess. Things on the earth, things under the earth, above the earth, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We must not forget this when we preach Christ. Peter did not preach Jesus as his buddy. He preached Him at Pentecost as Lord and Christ. John did not approach Jesus as his buddy here. He responded to that revelation by falling on his face. Now that doesn't mean that we can't as believers have intimate fellowship with Christ. But we should have awe and reverence just as we would if we were in the presence of a dignitary or a president or a king. Even in our prayer life. We can be familiar with Christ but be careful with being too familiar. But what, what was done to John when he fell on his face? Jesus laid his hand on him and said, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. All those that, that encountered the glorified Christ, Daniel, Peter, James, and John, John here, all of them were comforted in that moment. Christ in His judgment is a terror to the wicked, but He is the comfort for the saints. They were told not to fear on the Mount of Transfiguration. Daniel was lifted up on his feet and said, don't fear. Here John uh, was touched on the shoulder. Don't fear. That's another amazing paradox. Jesus Christ, terror, yet comfort. We're to fear God, have awe and reverence for Jesus Christ, but we can have fellowship with Him. What an amazing truth that is absent from the religions of men. In all the religions of men, God is distant and unknowable. If, if, if it's a monotheistic religion, if it's polytheistic, the gods can't be known. They do what they do for themselves. And there is no comfort in their presence. There is comfort for those that fear God in the presence of God. So here we have the terror for the wicked, comfort for the saints. Well, Jesus Christ is presented as a judge. How is that a comfort for the saints? How? 
Anthony, if you'll read Psalm 58, 10, and 11. And Alicia, Revelation 13, 10. And Donna, Revelation 14, 11, and 12. How is the terror of Jesus Christ as a judge, in terms of His judgment, a comfort for the saint? The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Say that, so that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judges in the earth. My friends, the vengeance of God upon wickedness is a joy to the saint. Look at what David wrote here. The righteous shall rejoice in the judgment. He'll wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now that's not comfortable for the modern day neutered church. But there ought to be a desire within us to see wrong made right. To see wickedness and the wicked put down. Oh yes, we love the world. And we want to see people come to Christ. And our love is communicated through the preaching of the Gospel. But for those that will reject the Gospel, that terror is a comfort to us because we know that in Almighty God, all wrongs will be made right. The wrongs that are done to us, the wrongs that are done by us, it will all be made right. And that ought to be a source of comfort. Revelation 13.10 In other words, you reap what you sow. He that leads into captivity will be taken into captivity. He that kills with the sword shall be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. My friends, the patience and faith of the church is that all wrong will be made right. It's not our job. It's not our duty. Vengeance is the Lord. But we can rest assured that there is a reward for the righteous. There is a God that judges in the earth. Revelation 14, 11, and 12. Here we have a picture of the lake of fire. Eternity, eternal damnation. The smoke of that torment, not annihilation, but torment, endless suffering, rises up. And it is said, here is the patience of the saints. My friends, for those that fear God, there is even comfort in knowing that there is an eternal hell where sin and wickedness will be put down and will be taken out of our presence. Even hell should be a comfort for the, Jesus, for the follower of Jesus Christ because in hell, all that makes a lie, all that is corrupt, all that blasphemes the name of our Lord and Savior will be tormented forever and ever. So there's a sense in which we are comforted by these things. I didn't write it. God says this is the patience and faith of the saints. It's what it says. We all know when we look around this country today and see all this wickedness and these unborn children slaughtered and these men with men working that which is disgusting and wanting to parade their, uh, uh, their, their, their debauchery and justify it, when we see a ridiculous excuse for a president, when we see corruption from the highest level of government down to the small business, 
We want to see the heavens rended and the Son of Man come back and make things right. There is nothing wrong with that, my friend. You need not ask forgiveness for those feelings. That is the patience and faith of the saints. Know and rest assured that it will happen. Over in Isaiah, um, the prophet is uh, wrapping up his uh, prophecy in chapter 64. He has this feeling. All that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burns, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Is that our desire? Our desire ought to be that Christ comes back and justifies Himself before the wicked, proves Himself to be true, and then demonstrates His authority by casting everything that blasphemes into an eternal lake of fire. I'm not ashamed to desire that. But again, a biblical paradox. While we desire the judgment of the wicked, while we desire to see unrighteousness put down, we also desire that those who reject Christ would escape that by believing upon Him. So, something that religion cannot explain. While we desire the judgment of God, as obedient Christians, we go forth and preach the words of life that people might escape it. Understanding that the only difference between a sinner and a saint is a saint is a sinner that's been saved by grace. And if God can save us and cause us to escape, He can do that for others. And until that judgment comes, though we look for it, we labor that others also might escape. It says here, almost finished. And I've covered more verses today than I'm used to here. It's great. John was on his face and Jesus laid his right hand upon him and said, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. In other words, I'm in control of all things. Don't fear. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus Christ was the only one in the form of a man, in the history of man, that died, rose from the dead, and never died again. There were some that God rose up from the dead, but they died again. Died, rose from the dead, and never died again. Now, Enoch didn't die. He was translated. Uh, uh, Elijah didn't die. He was translated. So they can't fit this description. Jesus was alive. He died. And now He's alive again. Alive forevermore. Amen. So be it. Ebonics. True that. Emphasis there. And listen, I have the keys of hell and of death. The keys of hell and death. What does that mean? Friends, we need to understand that hell, in the old, in, as it's revealed to us in the Bible, in Greek, it's the word Hades or Hades. Hell is not the same as the lake of fire. When a man dies without Christ, as the rich man is portrayed in Luke chapter 16, his soul is tormented in hell. What happens if you are arrested for a crime and then you are incarcerated? Where's the first place that you go? Which jail? Okay. In county jail, you, the dirt judge determines whether you have a bond and if you have no bail and can't make the bail, you sit in that county jail, right? Then the t day comes for your trial. You're put on trial, you're found guilty, you're sentenced. Then where do you go? Prison. State pen, right? Think of it that way. Hell is just a holding cell. 
In earthly terms, it's like county jail. You die in your sins, you're, you're sitting in hell in torment. Your spirit. And Jesus holds the keys to death or the grave and hell. The place where the wicked suffer waiting the day of their judgment. That day of judgment comes. It says in the Scriptures that many will be raised from the grave in Daniel chapter 12, some to life, some to shame and contempt. John 5 speaks of a a resurrection of damnation. Resurrection of damnation. Revelation chapter 20. Let me find it here. Revelation 20, 13 and 14 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. My friends, when a man dies and his soul goes to hell, he hasn't even been judged yet. There's coming a day at that great white throne judgment when the sea and the grave and hell will give up their dead. They'll raise up, God will slap them with a body, and they'll stand in judgment. And then eternal body, soul and spirit, will be cast into a lake of fire. So hell's just a shadow of what's to come. Hell is the torment of the spirit. The lake of fire and brimstone is the torment of man in his fullness, body, soul, and spirit. A body that doesn't die, but endures torment and pain for all eternity. And Jesus Christ is the one as judge who holds the keys to hell and death and is the one that will bring up hell and death, judge it, and then cast it into a lake of fire. So when we preach and talk about hell, let's don't refer to hell as just a general reference to eternal suffering. Let's refer to it as it is presented in Scripture. A holding cell. A prelude to something far worse, which is the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, no man is cast alive into the lake of fire. Actually, I won't say no man. One man is cast alive in the lake of fire. Do you all know who that is? Satan's not a man. Satan's cast alive in there, yeah, but there's a man who's cast alive in there. Actually, two men. Antichrist and the false prophet. We learn later in Revelation that the beast or Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. So just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, came back alive, conversely, the Antichrist and his prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. So to get to the lake of fire for normal men, you've got to die first. Okay? So there is a difference. There's a difference. And then verse 19, I'll finish up. This is the commission. John has seen the vision, and now he's told to do something very plainly. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Friends, this is the outline of the book. This is the Jesus Christ ordained outline of Revelation, and it can or should not be understood in any other way. Write the things which you have seen. What did John just see? The vision of Christ. Who He is as a judge. Then he's told to write the things which are. We're going to see chapter 2 and 3, the church age, the message to the seven churches. And then to write the things which happen, happen hereafter, or as we see in the Greek, after these things, or after the church age. That's the future period of tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble. 
Daniel's 70th week and the coming of Christ. Okay? So, the things which you have seen is the vision of the Son of Man, Revelation 1. The things which are, Revelation 2 and 3, are the representative churches. Now, we have to understand that these churches are not only local churches, and I'll talk more about this next week, they are a picture of the history of the church from Pentecost to the day of the rapture. Now, some would say that can't be true because the early church fathers didn't, didn't write about that. this. The reformers didn't see things this way. Well, friends, in order to see it this way, you've got to be able to look back on history and see the development. In the days of the early church fathers, uh, they were still in the period of... Uh, of uh, Ephesus and into Smyrna and maybe into Pergamos. In the days of the Reformers, it was in the days of Sardis. We're living in the days of Laodicea. We can actually look back and see the fulfillment of these things down through the centuries. And so sometimes prophecy, prophecy cannot be clearly understood at, the, at its beginning, but can be more clearly understood toward its end. So that's why some of these things that I'm going to be teaching may not have been understood or talked about by the early church fathers. But we don't decide what the Scriptures teach based on what men taught. We decide what the Scriptures teach by reading them ourselves. Okay? And so that's what's important. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But we have this basic outline of Revelation. And it's interesting how we see the number 7 being used a lot. And Revelation can really be also divided into seven sevens. So we have uh, the things which you've seen, chapter 1, things which are, chapter 2 and 3, and the things which are hereafter, chapter 4 to 22, basically. And we also can divide this, I find very interesting, into seven sevens. Okay? Beginning with chapter 2, okay? Alright? You have the seven churches. Two through three chapters. Okay? You have the seven seals of judgment, which are the seals that enclose that title deed to the earth that are opened gradually. That's 6, 1 through 8, 5. Okay? You have the seven trumpets, which are the seventh seal. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Um, that's 8, 6 through eleven nineteen. Get my book here. You have the seven, then you have kind of a parenthesis here. You have what are called the seven personages. Or the seven uh, characters that are active or symbolically active during this period of judgment. You have Michael the archangel, you have the dragon, you have the beast, you have the, uh, uh, the whore, and all of these, and we'll talk about that more later. Then you have the seven vials of judgment, chapters 15 and 16. Seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials. You have the seven dooms. Things that are doomed as a result of God's judgment. And finally, you have seven new things. 
So this is not a book about with random dark sayings and dark metaphors. This is a, a book that's very that's set out with order. It's set out. It's 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 outlined very clearly. It has a pattern. And that being the case, it can be understood. This idea that all this stuff's just floating around, randomly thrown in there, and we can't understand what it means. Uh, obviously, that's not true because look how neatly this book is laid out. Finally, in verse 20, we see an example of how when God gives symbols, He very clearly at times explains them. Sometimes right there in the immediate context, other times by interpreting Scripture with Scripture. So symbols in God's Word, even here in Revelation, are explained. The vision is explained here, right in the immediate context. Other times we can look to Daniel, we can look to Jesus in the Gospels, we can look to the writings of Paul, and we can get an explanation of what is being taught here. Okay? So, it's exciting to know that we can understand the Word of God, we can understand prophecy, and we're commissioned by God to hear, to read, to hear, and to do what is written in this book. So I want to encourage you to do that. Okay, next week I would like, before I go on the road to preach on the college campuses, I'd like to talk about the first message to the church at Ephesus. So I'd like you to study that this week and see what God would say to you, because these messages weren't just written to the churches, as I've said, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'll already go ahead and tell you that there was a time in my life when I was seeking God's will about something, and He very clearly gave me that message to the church at Ephesus to remind me that I, in ministry, had left my first love, and I needed to remember where I had been, repent, and repeat the first works. And it directly correlated to something we did in the ministry here in terms of taking the gospel uh, out into the streets. So that passage has special meaning to me, and, um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get into it next week. Anybody have any questions today? Thanks, kids, for behaving. You guys are doing great. Hope you're learning something. Yes? I don't. You have to point directly at it. I, which one? Seven personages. A personage is a is a person or a caricature of a of a person. Okay, comes from the word person, personage. Not a bad question. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we can eat. Let's remember those who are not amongst us this morning. Let's pray. Sorry about the coffee. Y'all did a good job of cleaning that up without me interrupting the without me interrupting the, the preaching that's being recorded. So, praise the Lord for that. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the Word that's been communicated. I pray we would not be just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Lord, as we look for that day when You will return, make things right. Lord, may we long for that day, long for Your judgment, long to see the wicked overthrown, but also labor that others like ourselves may escape that judgment, which is a free gift that need only be received by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Thank You for that salvation. Thank You for the grace that will call out men and women and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, as a, as a, as a royal priesthood, to honor You and serve You for all eternity, though we deserve death and hell. May this food give us strength. We pray for those that are not among us, those that are sick and ailing, that You would bring healing. And um, we ask that You would use us this week 
for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.